you'll turn to Colossians chapter 1, verse 21. We're going to look at verses 21 through 29 today in our study of Colossians. Just the unrivaled nature of our Savior, Jesus Christ. There should be a pew Bible in front of you if you don't have one. And you can flip there in the New Testament to Colossians chapter 1, verse 21. Let me begin reading here in verse 21. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. If indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, and filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit, so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God, that is, the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but now has been manifested to the saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of the mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. Last week we had the privilege of looking at verses 15 through 20, and the main point there was that Jesus Christ is the supreme revelation of God and rule over all creation. And that Christ is the only one, the one way that God has made for sinners, for his creation to be reconciled back to himself. And, and we saw that in verses 15 through 20, that Christ was, is supreme. And we finished out that section by looking at the fact that we had been reconciled. Through Christ, we can be reconciled to God through the gospel. God making peace with us making a way, as we said, for sinners to be reconciled. We said that word means to make friendly again, to be made friendly again with God where we were enemies. And, and this week we build on what we saw last week, and really we get to the response of all of this, the response of the gospel, the response of having been saved, the fact that as believers we have been reconciled to God through Christ, through the gospel. The question becomes, now what? We've been reconciled to God. Okay, now what? And Paul deals with that. And what we'll see is that everything that Paul says, everything that he commands, it goes back to the gospel. It goes back to having been reconciled. It goes back and flows from the gospel. I would challenge all of us in here, what we need more than anything, the one thing that would have the greatest impact on all of our lives would be a deeper, greater understanding of the gospel. More, more than just something that we pray to get saved, more than something that just saves us, it's something that fuels our entire lives. I mean, that, that's really what Paul says in Ephesians 3. His prayer for the Ephesians is that they would have a deeper understanding 
greater understanding of the love of God for them through Christ. The height, the depth, the width, the breadth. The power that that brings. My, my fear is that many of us, we see the gospel as something that we get saved by and we kind of check that box and then we move on to something else. It's like a, a level, you know, we've completed that level, now let's move on to something else. And, and I think if we were honest, we don't, we, we, we ha- most of our struggles come from a failure to understand the gospel. It's a misunderstanding of the gospel. When we get in tough times, what's the first question oftentimes people ask? Does God love me? That right there is, a, is an evidence that you do not quite comprehend the depth of the gospel. I'm not saying you're at fault. I'm not saying it's necessarily, I, I'm just saying you're not quite understanding the depth of the gospel. The good of suffering, it could be, I'm saying these could be, they could be that you don't quite grasp the depth of the gospel. The call for us to forgive our, even our enemies. Again, when we understand the gospel that we were that enemy that was first forgiven, now all of a sudden in Romans twelve eighteen, where he says, forgive our enemies, now that makes sense when we first realize in the gospel that we were that enemy. We were the enemy that God forgave. So, so now, hey, for him, to, for him to demand that his people do the same thing to others that he did to them, that at least makes sense. When we realize the suffering and all, all these things that Christ first did, when, when, when the, the call to die to self, to deny self, that makes sense when we grasp the gospel that... Philippians 2, that God, that Jesus Christ did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant. Though he existed in the form of God, did not, didn't, didn't cling to that. He laid it down. He didn't cease being God, he, just, he, he, he laid aside the prerogative to act as God in some instances in, instances in his humanity. And again, all all of that are things, those are things that we are called to do, but they all flow from the gospel, what we've had done for us first. And most of what we struggle with are in those areas. And if we and if we were to grow in the gospel, I'm not I'm saying in our in our sinfulness, we will struggle with those, but we'll be strengthened in those more and more. We'll question less and less of God's love for us. We'll, we'll question less and less the benefit of suffering. Less and less the, the, the it will be more eager to deny self. Why? Because we, we, we fall in love with God more and we understand in the gospel that that's what God first did for us. And as we look at our, our text today, uh, you'll see there on your handout the main point that I want us to walk away from with here today. This is the response, again, response to the gospel. Response to having been reconciled. Response to all that Christ has done and is on our behalf. And you see it on your handout. As believers, our lives are to be spent laboring and striving towards the advancement of the gospel above all else. Especially through our willingness to suffer on behalf of the gospel in response to having been reconciled to God through the same gospel that we seek to advance. Our lives are about the advancement of the gospel as believers. Please hear that. That's why we're saved. That's why we're still here and saved. It's the advancement of God's kingdom. 
of his gospel. It's not for us to live it up here on this earth knowing that no matter what happens, we get to go to heaven. That's not why he saved us and leaves us here on earth. We're soldiers for the Christ who have been positioned in a specific territory and we are to conquer that territory on behalf of our king. We're not there to get enamored and fall in love with the, with the accoutrements of the, of the area where God has positioned us. That's 1 Timothy 2.15. No good soldier, or not 2.15, 1 Timothy 2, he says, no, 4, I think. No good soldier entangles himself with the affairs of everyday life. He keeps in mind the reason he's there. We, we are to be about the gospel. We are to be about advancing the gospel. Everything in our lives is about advancing the gospel. And we'll see this in, in two ways here in verses 21 through 29. Verses 21 through 23 teach us this, and you'll see it number one in your handout. Our response to the gospel as believers is fueled. It's fueled. Where does, where does he get our energy? Where does he get our source? Where, does he get, where is it sustained? It's sustained, it's fueled by our understanding of what the gospel has fully accomplished on our behalf. By grace through faith. Saving us while we were hostile to God, making us sons and daughters where we were once enemies. In order to present us as holy and blameless beyond reproach before God. If we would grasp that, that would fuel us. And look at, look at verse 21. Paul starts out here in verse 21 by painting an accurate picture of the condition of sinners apart from Christ. Although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. Alienated, hostile, engaged in evil deeds. Listen, what Paul is saying here is the entire person, the entire person of a sinner is alienated from God apart from Christ. Top to bottom. Why, why Paul would say in Romans 3, there is none righteous, no, not one. There's not even one who seeks to do good. You're not, we're not, listen, apart from Christ, you're not a little bad. You're not kind of bad. You're wretched. That's what Paul says in Romans 7, 24. Even as a believer, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? We don't like to hear that. Even the song we sang this morning, people alter the words because they don't want to call themselves wretched, but that's what the Bible says about us. Enemies. Hostile. And that's our predicament apart from the work of God. Listen to what he says, Paul says in Ephesians 4, verses 18 and 19. He says, starting in verse 17, So this I say and affirm to with the Lord that you walk no longer as the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind. They, they've been saved. In verse chapter 4, he begins, as a pri Therefore, as a prisoner, I walk, don't, don't walk like you used to walk. This is how you used to walk, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. They have become callous, giving themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity and, God and greediness. That, that's a picture between there, between verse 21, that's a picture of who God crucified His Son to save. Wretched, ungodly sinners. Hostile, alienated, engaged in evil deeds. 
Listen, we weren't, we weren't neutral to God as sinners. We were hostile to God as sinners. Hostile. Enemies. Jesus himself said, you're either for me or you're what? Against me. He didn't say you're for me. There are some that are for me. There are some that are neutral. And then there are some that are really bad sinners. You're either for me or against me. Utter Utter sinners, that's who God sent his son to save. Not, not good people, not moral people, wretched sinners, enemies. As we saw in verse uh, 13, people who were in need of rescue. And, and if you look at verse 21, there's an order here. It, it wasn't that evil deeds, it, it wasn't that we did evil deeds, so now we're alienated. What he says there is out of our alienation, out of our hostility to God, comes our evil deeds. You, you see it in your handout. Our actions are sinful because our nature is, our nature is sinful. Apart from Christ. You, you sin because you're a sinner. Broken things come out of you because you're fundamentally broken apart from Christ. You know, apart from Christ, again, you don't stumble into sin. You, you've made your home in sin. You love it. The reason I hate my sin, that's the work of the Holy Spirit in me. That's part of the work of the Holy Spirit, is to convict of sin. And again, God has given us a conscience, Romans 1 and all that, but at the end of the day, listen to me, they, you love your sin, you love as a sinner, you love what God hates, and you hate what God loves. That's your nature. You're hostile. John 3, he goes on to say that, that he goes on, he says that sinners hate the light. Why do they hate the light? Because it exposes their sin. Why do they not want to hear the word of God? Why do they not want to be around you sometimes? Those things, why? Because your light exposes their sin. They hate it. You know why he goes on? Because they love their evil deeds, it says. And had we remained who we once were, we would have been separated from God in his presence and life and eternity. Death would reign over us apart from God intervening and sending Jesus Christ and pulling us out of that, rescuing us out of that, of that, out of that kingdom that is marred by death, that is marked by death. And you'll see on your handout, again, who we are apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ, look at it, by our nature, man is separated from God. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Ephesians Chapter 2, verse 3, among them too, we formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And listen, were by nature children of wrath. Nature. Children of wrath before Christ. But, but not only our nature, by our deeds, man is alienated from God. That's what he's saying here. Alienated. Separated. Again, in need of reconciliation, in need of being made friendly again. We're enemies. But not only that, what he's saying is by our condition, being dead in sin and without life, man is incapable of, of dealing with his sinful problem. On his own. Uh, Ephesians 2.1, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked. Dead. Dead. And listen, what he's saying, if, if there's going to be reconciliation, if reconciliation is going to be made between God and his creation who are now sinners, it must come from God himself. 
God, God, the gospel is God making a way for man to be brought back to God. Again, we're being reconciled to Him. He, he's the prize. Listen, not only, you go to Romans 5, not only is Christ the price because of, our, of the gospel, He's the price, He died, but He's also the prize. What we get is reconciliation back to God. And, and Paul paints a clear picture. What he's doing is he's painting a very clear picture of the completeness of the work of Christ on behalf of sinners in order to render us savable, in order for God to reconcile us, some specific things have to happen. And, and that's what Paul goes into in, in verse 22. Yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death. Why did he do that? In order to present you before him holy and blameless beyond reproach. What, what you see here in verse 22 and you see it on a handout is that the gospel perfectly meets our needs for, of salvation and reconciliation. It perfectly meets those needs. Based on our condition as a sinner, based on our condition of being alienated and, and hostile to God, in order for God to reconcile us to himself, some very specific things have to happen. God is holy. He's righteous. You know, he is already declared by his word, the wages of sin is death. Okay, so if he's going to if he's going to pass that over, if he's going to forgive you of your sin, listen, somebody's got to die. That was the whole picture of the Old Testament with the sacrificial system. Sin brings death. Sin is bloody. Ephesians 9, I mean, Hebrews 9:22, without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sin. All those lambs That were slaughtered. You know what they were pointing to? They were pointing to Christ. Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's the, he's the one sacrifice once and for all. You see Hebrews. Jesus, after making propitiation of sin, he sat down at the right hand of the Father. Listen, because it's finished. He's made a way for sinners to be declared holy, to be declared righteous, to be reconciled. For that now Jesus, God, can rightly forgive His creation, can rightly reconcile His creation back to Himself and maintain His holiness and justice and all the character that He is. Why? Because of Jesus Christ, who, was, who knew no sin, was perfectly righteous, and yet He died so that God could grant you and I Jesus' righteousness. The issue is righteousness. As sinners, we're not righteous. And God's kingdom is marked by perfect righteousness. Therefore, whoever enters his kingdom has got to be perfectly righteous. That's why Jesus came and died. So that we could have perfect righteousness. Therefore, we could be forgiven of our sin. We could be gifted perfect righteousness. And therefore, we could dwell in God's presence. And the gospel alone of Jesus Christ perfectly meets all of those demands that, that we could be holy and blameless and above reproach. We're, we're born as strangers. We're born separated from God, hostile in the mind, evil in our deeds. But Christ has been sent to make reconciliation available, to offer, again, His perfect righteousness for our sinfulness. That's the exchange. 
He comes as this great reconciler and brings us home as children and presents us before the Father as holy and blameless based on what He did on our behalf, based on His work. And believers, sinners who were once hostile now can be brought near. That's the gospel. All because of the work of Christ. And everything that Paul writes here, it goes back to understanding the gospel. And you see it on your handout. The heart of the gospel is the reconciliation of hostile sinners to their creator, a holy God. That's the gospel. It's reconciliation. And again, this necessitates an urgent and a right response to the, from the one who has been reconciled. Our, our status prior to faith in Christ and forgiveness was bleak. We were dead in our trespasses, unable to save ourselves, in need of rescue, as we saw in verses 13 and 14, drowning in our sin, death. And it's against that backdrop, it's against the gravity of our sinful condition that the majesty and the glory and the wonder and the mercy and the awesomeness of God are most clearly seen. Listen, if we don't understand our debt, if we don't understand that, our rescue is diminished. It's one thing to pay off a debt that's $10. It's another to pay off a $10 million debt. It's one thing to pay off a debt that, look, given enough time, you could have paid yourself. It's a whole other thing for somebody to pay off a debt that you could never pay. And that's the gospel. A debt that you could never pay. That I could never pay. And it's against that backdrop. That, that is our state when, when God stepped in and put forth Christ. And the goal, again, is to take hostile sinners, alienated sinners, and transfer them from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And that's what God established in Christ, a way to do that rightly. And what Paul begins to put forth here, and you'll see it on your handout, is, is okay, you've been declared blameless and holy and presented above reproach. Now live that way. And what Paul begins, you see it on your handout, to put forth here is that our present behavior is to match our status before God that has been granted to us through the gospel. We see this in, a, in many places. Listen to what Ephesians 5, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for you as an offering and as a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. aroma. Listen to Hebrews Chapter 10, verse 10. By this will we have been, by this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus once and for all. And he's saying, live that way. Jesus' Jesus's atoning and sufficient work fuels our present lives. L listen to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 15 through 19, just to see it again. But like the Holy One who has called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Listen to what he says in verse 17 through 19. If you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold, from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but you were redeemed with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. 
Again, how do we currently live? Look at the gospel. You've been declared holy. You've been declared blameless. Your father is holy, blameless. Live that way. Here's what he's saying. Be who you have been declared to be in the gospel. And, and that's really what fuels verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith. Only the gospel provides this. Cling to the gospel. Keep trusting in the gospel. There's nothing else to turn to. And the sense of what Paul writes here, again, you, we don't catch it in our English, but in the, in the Greek, it's not a question of if they will, but it's more since they are. Paul is confident in who these believers are, and yet the world is still coming at them, and these false teachers wanting them to turn away from the gospel. And what Paul is saying here is, you know there's no other gospel. You know there's nowhere to turn. Cling to the one and only source of life and forgiveness. The word could be translated in our English, if we were going to use it, it could be since. And, and, and why? Paul has confidence in them. Why? Because perseverance is normal for believers. Where else am I going to turn? I mean, that's, that's the question that Jesus asked his disciples. He said, are you guys going to walk away too? And what did they say? Where would we go? For you alone have the source of eternal life. No, we're going to keep following you no matter what. That's what a believer does. That's what marks a believer is, is every day I'm trusting Jesus Christ for my righteousness. And then I'm living that out. And, and Paul is confident in their position. But listen, the confidence is not in them. You see it on your handout. Paul's confidence is not because their faith is so strong, but because the Savior is so strong. And Paul's confidence is not because they're steadfast, but because the Savior is steadfast. As they cling to Christ, again, as they keep coming back to the reality of their dependence on Christ, nothing, we saw it, nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. As much as Satan wants you to feel that way and wants you to think that way, nothing, believer, can separate you. And yet, but yet from a human perspective, we persevere. We cling to the gospel. By faith, I keep coming back. Even though things sometimes don't look this way, I come back to the gospel and I say, look, I've got to tr I'm going to keep trusting that what you've said is true. That you who promised are able, in spite of what it looks like. It's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. What? In the resurrection. Go back to the resurrection. Go back to the fact that he appeared to over 500 people. Go back to the proof of the resurrection that Jesus conquered death and be steadfast and immovable in that. No matter what Satan throws at you, no matter what the world, believer, be steadfast in the gospel. That God takes those who are spiritual orphans and he makes them sons and daughters. That he will finish, again, that, he will, he, that nothing can separate us. Matter of fact, that God is using all that we go through to conform us, Romans 8, 29, to the image of His Son. The very thing that Satan means to destroy you with is the very thing that God uses in His sovereignty to conform you to the image of His Son with. And all of that goes back to understanding the gospel, rightly. And you see it there on your handout. The truth is that we never outgrow the gospel. We never outgrow the need to understand the gospel, to dig into the gospel. It's the foundation, not only of our salvation, but for our obedience and our present living. We go back and back and back to the gospel.
understanding the gospel. And this same gospel that saves us is the same gospel that sustains and sanctifies us. We do not get in by way of the gospel and then live by works. We don't get in by grace and then maintain by works. We get in by grace and we live by grace, all fueled by the gospel. We are continually nourished by the gospel. And Paul says, look to Christ and continue in the faith. Set your eyes on Christ, continue in the faith. There's go you're going to be presented one day as holy and blameless. Continue. Hang in there. But everything is fueled by the gospel. By following Christ, by clinging to Christ. It, it's more than just an attitude or, a, or an understanding. I mean, it is to enter a whole different realm. That's what he says in verse 13 and 14. You've been transferred into a new kingdom. There's a new ethic that goes with that kingdom. We're, we're going to Costa Rica, Lord willing, next week. Josh has walked us through weeks of training to explain to us, here's what the culture of Costa Rica is like. Here's what the culture of the people are like. Here's what the, the language, all these customs, all these things, here's what means a lot to Costa Ricans. Here's what, why? So that we can be effective. There's a whole, what works in America is different in Costa Rica. It's the same gospel, but you may share it in a context that looks different. And it's specific to them. You've been there. When you're in a foreign country, the thing, again, the things that you... Americans, we're loud and boisterous and all this stuff. And it's easy to spot an American in a foreign country. Because we take everything that's American and we just take it to Costa Rica. Think, well, this works in America. No, no, it's a different context. The gospel's the same. But we're but we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna handle ourselves in a way that presents a way for us to share the gospel and doesn't offend them. We've been transferred into a new kingdom. That kingdom has a new ethic. And Jesus Christ is Lord over all, and God's redemptive plan for the world is the reason why we do everything we do. I mean, Paul doesn't present just some three-step formula or some quick solution. No, he goes, says, go back to the gospel. Go back to the gospel. Understand the reality of who you were apart from Christ and who you are in Christ and live in the overflow of that. And, and that in and of itself, again, he gets to this about maturity and that. That's discipleship. Discipleship is, is going deeper and deeper and gaining a deeper and deeper understanding of, of the gospel, of my role in the gospel, in the sense of not, not saving myself, but now that I'm saved, what do I do with this life? What does God want me to do and do through me this life that he has bought, that he's purchased? And you see it there on your handout. Discipleship is the transformation of the mind to understand the gospel more fully and then to live it out in the power of Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's what he says in verse 27. The hope of Christ in you, the hope of glory. And what he starts to say in verses 24 through 29 is directly tied to this. Because listen, if we're not going back to the gospel, our, I promise you what I'm about to say to you in verses 24, what Paul says to you, your flesh is not going to like. I, I promise you your flesh is going to find excuses to skirt around it, to dance around it, to, to justify yourself. I promise you. Or, or we're going to say, well, that's, that was for Paul. 
Or, you know, that's for Chris. That's, he's the pastor. He's called to do that. What, what we're going to see here is, is, in verses 24 through 29, is God's will for every single person that calls himself a believer. Not just Paul. But again, it goes back to the gospel. It's going to go back to an understanding of the gospel. And number two on your handout, verses 24 through 29, in response to the gospel by which we have been saved, believers are servants of the gospel who are willing to suffer for the gospel in order to extend the gospel to others by seeing Christ's love through us and are willing to suffer according to God's plan. Paul says in verse 24, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh. I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Of this church, I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. As Paul contemplated the gospel, here's what he says. It brings him to the mindset that he's a steward, that he's a minister. That, that's the, the commonality here. He's a servant. But both, of these sect, both of those verses are connected by the word minister. It, it means servant. In seeing himself as a servant of Christ, because of what Christ accomplished on his behalf in the gospel, He's a servant. And, and all of this is grounded in the gospel. All of this is grounded on what God accomplished. That, that's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. Or do you not know that you have been bought with a price? That you are not your own? He says the answer, therefore, glorify God in your body. You're not your own. You've been bought with a price. Glorify God in your body. That's the response. Again, all going back to the gospel. The gospel, receiving the gospel, okay, I'm not my own God, I belong to you, now how do I serve you? And, and, and think about this for a moment. What Paul is getting at here is how believers steward God's grace rightly in their lives. This is what he's getting at. The idea of being a minister, a servant, a steward. Look, and, and it, was, it, was for, it was not only for Paul's sake. Look what he says twice. Sufferings for your sake. Verse 25. Bestowed on me for your benefit. Others minded. A servant. And, and, and Paul was joyful. Why? You see on your handout. He rejoiced in his sufferings because of what they accomplished on behalf of the gospel. He's not rejoicing in suffering for the sake of suffering. He's rejoicing because of what God was doing in his and through his sufferings. And namely, in other people. And, and that right there is, again, that's the why behind suffering. God's glory, the advancement of the gospel. And, and what he says is, he says he's, what he says here in verse 24, if you're not careful, he says, I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, and filling up was it lacking in Christ's afflictions, Paul is not belittling Christ's work here. Please listen carefully. Jesus Christ's work is totally sufficient for our salvation. Paul is not completing the work of Christ in providing the means. He's not adding to the worth or the sufficiency. And you, you'll see what he says there on your handout. What Paul is saying here 
is that our sufferings as believers complete Christ's affliction not by adding to their worth, by extending them to the people they were meant to save. Do you see the point? Your life and my life were meant to extend the gospel to people even today that Jesus Christ meant to save, whom he died for. It's, this is not an issue of, of he's not adding to the worth or the, the value. He's simply making it known to different parts of the world. I mean, again, this is what Paul said, and we've seen it many times in Philippians 1, how his imprisonment extended the gospel to people who would not have gotten it otherwise. From our perspective, God used his imprisonment to extend the gospel, to take the gospel to people and places, new people and places. And point the, what he's saying here for you and I is we have the privilege as believers of continuing Christ's work on a historical plane of taking the gospel to new people and to new places. And this is how we are to spend our lives. Advancing God's kingdom through whatever means possible. That's the point. And, and Paul, Paul, not only in his life, if you were to go over to Philippians 2, and you could turn there to, to Philippians 2, just flip back to the left a little bit. Philippians is right before Colossians. Paul illustrates this point, I believe, in the life of Epaphroditus in Philippians 2. Paul is in jail. The church at Philippi has, has, has gathered up a gift that they want to send Paul. And the challenge is, how are we going to get that, how are we going to get that gift to Paul? And Epaphroditus agrees to, do, to be the one that would send it. And, and Epaphroditus agrees to go to Paul. He, he agrees to take the offering. In, in, the, in the interim, during that, Epaphroditus nearly loses his life. He, look at verse 27. For indeed he was sick to the point of death, but God had mercy on him, and not on him also, but on me, so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. So in the, in, the, in the process of doing a good work, in the process of taking that gift from Philippi to Paul in prison, Epaphroditus suffers to the point of almost dying. In response to this, Paul tells the church at Philippi to honor Epaphroditus when he returns. Look at verse 29. Receive him then in the Lord with all joy and hold men like him in high regard. And here's why. Here, here's the connection. Listen to verse 30. Look at verse 30 if you're there. Almost the same language that Paul uses over in Colossians 1.24. Why? Epaphroditus. Because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life, listen, to complete what was deficient in your service for me. You see the picture? Epaphroditus took something from here and extended it to there and almost died. Suffered on behalf of the gospel. He didn't add to the gift. He just delivered the gift. That's the, it's almost the same language that Paul uses in verse 24. You and I, believer, are, are, our role, our job, if you will, is to deliver Christ's offering of salvation and display of love to a lost world, just like Epaphroditus delivered Philippi's gift to Paul. That's our job. 
And in doing so, we, we display the worth and the love that we have for Christ. And not only that, he has for others. And what Paul gets, through, gets to here is that one of the primary ways that that is accomplished is through us willing to, be suffer, willing to suffer for the gospel. And what Paul says in verse 24 is that believers exhibit the sufferings of Christ by suffering for Christ. And you see it on your handout. Verse 24 teaches that God intends for the afflictions of Christ to present it to the world through the afflictions of his people. That you and I as believers are willing to do whatever it takes to take the message of Jesus Christ and the gospel to lost people no matter what it costs. And in doing that, we present an accurate picture of the gospel. We fill up in the sense of what is lacking, meaning we deliver it to people and places today. That's our our responsibility, that's our role. And, And God intends for the body of Christ, the church, you and me, believers, to experience the same suffering He experienced so that when we proclaim the cross as a way of life, people will see the marks of the gospel on us and sense our love for them. And what he is exposing here is the the hard truth for you and me regarding the proper use of our lives as believers. This is is Romans 12, 1 and 2 stuff you can't get away with. This is how we, in, in response to the gospel, this is how we offer our bodies as a spiritual and holy sacrifice pleasing to God, by pleasing the one who bought us. By taking his gospel to, continual, to, to continually take it to people and places that are new. All in response to having been saved ourselves. And you see it, our calling there on your handout as believers is to make the afflictions of Christ real for people by the afflictions we experience in bringing them the message of salvation. Christ lives in you and me, believer. He commands that his body, the church, reveal his sufferings even through their own suffering, suffering if that's what he calls us to. That, that we are extensions. And, and you see this, listen to Galatians 6, 17. From now on, let no one cause trouble for me, for I bear on my body the brand marks of Jesus. L- listen to 2 Corinthians 4, Verses 10 through 12. Always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh, so death works in us, but life in you. Do you see what he's saying? What is manifested in us even in suffering? The Jesus. Constantly. We, we bear his marks so that when people see us, they see Jesus. That, that it's, it's clear. We who are live are constantly being delivered so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Suffering. That we would give up our lives for the lost. And the question for us becomes this. Do, can you say that as a believer? Do you possess, like on my body, there are scars of me doing silly things throughout my life. And like you see the scar and like that was ice skating with my hands in my pockets. 
broken arms, when I jumped out of bleachers, when I could have walked down the ramp. You know, there's a big scar on the back of my leg where instead of swinging on my own, I was lazy and I was pushing myself with a pole and it got stuck and it rammed in my leg. I mean, just silliness. Those are marks of me being foolish. But what Paul is saying here is this. Do you bear any marks for Jesus? Are there any marks on your life that are batter scars for the advancement of the gospel? In, in your life, are there wounds... That when say, hey, what happened there? That's because of the gospel. That, that's because the proclamation of the gospel. Charles Billingsley sings a great song, The Marks of the Mission. The question is this, do you bear any marks of the mission? Someone look at your life, they ask you, hey, what, what happened here? Let me tell you the gospel. Th that's what Paul's getting at. Paul, Paul, uh, the writer of Hebrews deals with this in, in Hebrews chapter, chapter 12. He says, Therefore, since we have so great a count of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin that so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Listen to what he says. Consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin, and you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and he scourges every son he receives. Again, where are our eyes fixed? On Jesus. And in order to accomplish our salvation, what did Jesus have to do? He suffered. And this is why we need discipleship. And why we need maturity, as Paul gets to in Colossians at the end here, in verses 28 and 29, to understand. Because our natural man, our natural man will flee from what we're seeing here. Our in our Think about this. We live in safe neighborhoods. We choose mild climates. People, people just move here from Connecticut. Tired of the snow. We got to have our AC. Got to have our AC. I mean, we went about three, day, two, three days without AC in the last hurricane. You'd have, thought, you'd have thought we had to go a year. We avoid dark streets. We purify our water. We only go to safe countries. We, we only go if it won't affect our lifestyle by not costing too much. Listen, Paul would have been the same until he grasped the gospel. Until God got a hold of him. And, and the gospel and all that Christ accomplished on Paul's behalf is what fueled Paul. 2 Corinthians 1.5, to share abundantly in Christ's sufferings. 1, 1 Corinthians 4.10, to be a fool for Christ's sake. 1 Corinthians 4, 11-13, to be hungry and thirsty, poorly clothed, roughly treated, homeless, reviled, persecuted, slandered, called the scum of the world, the dredge of all things. Why would Paul do that? Because of the gospel. Because of appreciation for the gospel. I mean, in Acts 9, Paul knew right off the bat, that no one duped Paul. God called Paul, gave him a very clear understanding of the gospel. Listen to Acts 
9, 15, and 16. The Lord said to Paul, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. Listen to verse 16. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. From the, from the get-go. I promise you, nobody shares that when they share. When we share the gospel today, nobody shares that. Suffering. 2 Timothy 3.12, it has been granted for those to, to not only believe, or it, for those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, they will suffer. 2 Timothy 3.12, for those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, persecution. Philippians 1.29, it's been granted to you not only to believe in Jesus, but to suffer. That word there, granted, is grace. It means grace. And what Paul is saying, you see that suffering is a gift. For all believers to know Christ. Luke, Luke 9, 23 and 24. Very clear. Jesus makes it very clear, this gospel. He says, he says to them all, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. Whoever wishes to lose his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. John 15, 20. Jesus says, if they persecuted me, Guess what you can expect? It's just part of the deal. But, but what Paul is saying and what we have to see, and you see it in the handout, our suffering is a visible reenactment, if you will, of the sufferings of Christ so the world will see His love through us. He has, Christ has prepared a, law, a love offering for the world by the suffering and the dying of sinners in order to take the gospel to new people in new places. To be a personal representation or presentation of the gospel. And in that, does that make sense? That's how we fill up what is lacking. We just continue the mission. We're taking the gospel to new people in the new places that, that God intended to save and intends to save. And again, that's what he says in verses 25 through 29. This is, this is the mission that he was made to be a servant of. To make the glorious gospel known everywhere. To spend his life on the gospel. And that's why Paul could say he rejoiced. You see it on your handout. In this suffering we are able to rejoice because of what it accomplishes. Maturity and intimacy. But also what it, not only for us. But what it accomplishes in the world around us. The proclamation and advancement of the gospel. I mean again. What would it profit a man? Mark 8. To gain the whole world. Yet forfeit his soul. To, to live this way, Paul is saying, this is the pathway to true joy. And look down in verses 28 and 29. We proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose also I labor striving according to His power which works mightily within me. Maturity is not simply gaining an, a, a factual knowledge of the Bible. Maturity is willing to, to, to submit your life under that Bible that you have understood. It is to surrender your life to that Bible. To live it out. That's maturity. 
to, to spend our lives displaying the gospel through our lives, if you will. By even suffering on behalf of those whom God is going to use us to take the gospel to. And, and you'll see it. Maturity brings us to the place where we're able to embrace anything God brings or allows in order to advance the gospel. And I say that knowing that people in here are, have been through a lot. And I'm not diminishing that, but, but as we grasp the gospel more and more... I mean, if God is going to use it to advance the gospel, we as his servants have to get to the point where we say, okay, we're going to be okay with that. We're going to trust you. We're going to trust you. And that's hard. It's easy to say in America when, we, when I've got everything, everything I need. But maturity is me saying, you know what, Lord, you can do whatever you want through me in order to advance the gospel. I mean, I, I will be... Being very honest, I, there in my natural man, I my natural man does just if left to myself, I do not want to leave my family for a week. I have a finite amount of time with my two kids. Karen and I, Lord willing, have numerous years after they they leave, but we have a finite time. Never mind the fear of what what if something happens to them while I'm gone. What if something happens to me, while I'm gone, and then I'm reminded, what, what if my kids have a legacy that says their dad was willing to give up whatever to advance the gospel? What, what if their legacy is this? My dad was always around, but you know what? The only, he left us occasionally, but the only time he left us was to advance the gospel. What about that? You know, we, 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 had, a lot, we had good stuff, and they took care of us, but you know what they also did? They took us to places so that we could help advance the gospel. I mean, Lord willing, we're, we're going to go to the Dominican. We've gone there years. It costs money to go there. I get it. And I'm not, I don't mean to sound like, I'm not, I'm just saying I'm battling with the same things you're battling with. Just because I'm a pastor doesn't mean that I'm not battling with those same things. I don't want to leave my family. I can think of a lot of things to do with money. But is the gospel worth it? Is, is this my life to spend on Chris Basham, or is this my life to spend on the gospel? And, and, and again, I, I, was, I thought about a picture, and I won't name them, but I thought about filling up was lacking. I was studying this passage. We had a real need at Married for Life for some people. And there were a couple of ladies who stepped up Friday night to their own hurt and helped us. At the very point that their probably the deepest hurt in their lives, and they stepped up to help us in that very same spot at their own cost. I mean, my, my wife was weeping when they called and said, look, we'll help you. But, but that, that's Maturity. That's taking, that's taking even being willing to suffer that others could be served. That's what God's called us to. And real maturity is living in the overflow of the gospel through a deepening understanding of the gospel. It's not just memorizing a book of the Bible. It's not just showing up at a Bible study. It's surrendering your life to what you see in that Bible study. It's surrendering your life to that book that you've memorized. It's seeking to live holy and blameless for a watching world that Christ may be made much of. 
That's, that's maturity. It's embracing whatever. If, if God is going to advance the gospel, so be it. Let's do it. Let's do it. That, that's maturity. That, that's why Paul could say he could have joy. And the gospel, listen, the gospel demands a total re- reorientation of our lives in response to what Christ has accomplished, what God accomplished through the cross. And, and here's the motivation. Romans, Romans 8, 17 and 18, it, it, it sums it up. This is by faith. We accept this by faith. And if children, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also... Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Listen to what it says. If indeed we suffer with him so that we may be glorified with him. What comes before the glorification? Suffering. Listen to what Paul says though. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed in us. He who loses his life for Christ's sake is no fool. You know why? He's got something better coming. I forget who it was that, Tony, you probably remember the missionary that said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Jim Elliott, thank you. That didn't sound like Tony. There's no way that voice came from those muscles. No, that was Helga. But listen, you think about it, that's the Christian life. He is no fool who, gain, who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Faith. It's faith. And, and, and don't we live in a comfortable America, I get it, but don't let our lack of persecution lull us to sleep to our mission. Don't, don't be, just because you're not getting shot at every day, don't put your gun down. Don't fall in love with the things of this world. You're, you're here on a mission. And the mission is the advancement of the gospel. And to that end, I pray that we would labor and strive. No matter what. 